Monday's experts Always know what's best Always tell you what you should have done Monday's experts Always know what's cooking How the game was lost and how it could have been won Hello everyone and welcome to the, I don't know what number we're up to now, edition of The People's Game. We have a bumper episode this morning. We've got a preview of Port Adelaide and the Bulldogs ahead of the AFL men's season. And we're also going to discuss the spaghetti bolognese sauce that is the current AFLW ladder with one week to go in that competition. I'm joined as ever by Gordon Hunter. Meredith, Gordon, good morning to you. Morning, Jack. And yes, it's, it's good to see footy pretty much in full flight now. It is. And we're going to just jump straight into this round of AFLW. Uh, Adelaide and Frio, uh, the first game. What did you make of this, Gordon? Well, arguably, I reckon this was game of the game of the year. Adelaide, six goals, four forty, defeated Fremantle, five goals, six thirty six. And I think this game proved yet again why Adelaide are a shot at the grand final. They've almost taken a uh, Bill Belichick and New England Patriots approach to this this type of game. You know, the own two start, that's their extended preseason, and then we'll just crack on with it for the next, next four weeks. And that's what they've done. They've got themselves back in it with a shot at the grand funnel. Their form now is as sweltering as the conditions were up in the top end in Darwin, and they just have a superior spine that I think other AFLW clubs are going to struggle to contend with, especially in at least next week, and if not, the next two weeks. Um, and that, of course, is always helped by the presence of Erin Phillips. She may be only be on half a leg or one leg or no legs at all, as is the, uh, the hyperbole coming from the commentary box these days. But she kicked three goals, she set the game up for them, and she really does make life easier for everyone else in that field in the Adelaide team. But really, I think the key player for them yeah, on, in that game was Sarah Allen. Mm. And it's good to see defence get recognised. So she made the, the team of the week, She's probably, I'll go on to that, the player's champion, but probably the player of the week as well. And it's good to see someone who has such an important role as an intercepting defender and a lockdown defender get, get the kudos that they deserve. My takeaway and question for you, though, Jack, is is there such a thing as an unfair reflection on one season? Because that's all the talk coming out of the Freo camp. They're, they're going to... They're currently two and four. They're obviously going to miss the finals. Everyone's saying, oh, you know, there's some close losses. It's such an unfair reflection... But as Nathan Bucker would say, we're in a win-loss industry. So if you end up two and four, you ended up two and four. That's that's as fair as it comes. Yeah, I'm a bit conflicted on this because I've always been a, a case of or a, a believer in the fact that the ladder doesn't lie. Uh, we were better than where we finished. No, you weren't. You had a whole season to prove how good you were, and that's where you landed. I think there are little little statistical anomalies in it, and I think the fact that they have had so many close losses matters. My question with AFLW, and we'll kind of keep on this with Collingwood a little bit later, is I don't know how relevant what's happening now or significant improvement now is to next year. Like, I don't know what happens in the next eight months that means that if you're playing well at the back end of the year, and where does that leave them when they start next year? Um, I mean, it will mean they go into the year with more confidence, but, like, based on what we've seen already this year, it's not... It's pretty easy to be two and four and say that you're unlucky in AFLW. Like... The nature of the competition is such that there's a lot of close games. Even Collingwood will feel that if they'd you know, gotten a win early, they'd be in the hunt. And when you look at the ladder, really, the only team that's been more or less irrelevant since round two is Carlton. Mm. And everyone else could, in theory, say that they were that pretty close. And so I think 
Yeah, like I understand the sentiment, but maybe I've just answered my own question. I don't necessarily think the latter lies. If you're not good enough to win close games in what is a lower scoring form of the game, unlucky. You know, that's where you end up. You end up two and four and not playing in the grand final. Second game was, of course, Brisbane and Collingwood. Brisbane, five goals, 9-39. We're defeated by Collingwood, eight goals, 5-53. And it's, you know, it's always good for the pilots to not late to the, to the party because... They this is this the game that they performed and the what they put out there in this game is what they promised at the start of the season. They they promised mm. high relatively high scoring, they promised lots of stars that did it forwards, they promised nice free flowing ball movement, and they did it all versus Brisbane and they did it about three weeks too late. Yeah, I, and that was kind of I think the the test case here and where this will be really frustrating for Pie supporters is that we saw last year that an ending to the year like this didn't have a dramatic difference or make a difference to the start of their season. So I'm not sure how much this matters. I think there's still... I don't think it'll take away from the internal review that'll go on at Collingwood in terms of what they try and change, but I think it's pretty important for them that someone like Mo Hope has obviously totally turned her year around. And she's now, statistically, in terms of goals kicked, one of the best forwards in the comp. Yeah, definitely. And it was a very strange kind of setup in a way that Brisbane had everything to play for in this game but it was the Magpies who were more determined and, and more polished and essentially more desperate to win despite the fact that their season was over, you know, probably two two weeks ago. Well, I don't set too much store in AFLW by this, like, had more to play for mm-hmm. thing because I think it goes back to, like, you're an AFLW player, there's seven games that you're guaranteed, you're trying to keep your list position. Like, if you can't find something to play for when you only get seven weeks, like, there's a the, the lack of the commodity means that I think it adds more value to the games that they do get, which means that when you get something like this, that in theory in a men's game, you'd look at it as a a dead rubber per se. I I just don't think you're going to get that as much in AFLW. Definitely fair enough. And the the people that kind of showed that were the Conwood players. So you had Christina Bernardi and Moa Hope kicking three goals each in a game that kind of set up from the get-go. They kind of led that charge. And then Jasmine Garner came in as the, as the the third wheel there, kind of playing off them and allowing them to, to be the goal kickers, but she was the, kind of the focal point going forward inside 50. And then yet another great game from Chloe Malloy. And I think maybe uh, the Collingwood coaching staff have proven us wrong this year and that perhaps for Collingwood that is her best position because she seems to be, or even just in the Collingwood setup, she seems to be dictating play a lot a lot better from halfback and rebounding. And because she has that elite kick, mm. Yeah, obviously she can set up play a lot better from there than having to rely on delivery coming to her in the yeah. forward 50. I mean, I still think Collingwood have a nucleus of, and we've already discussed this, they have a nucleus of very good players and sometimes it's as simple as those players all turning up on the same day, which they didn't do early in the year and the results were, you know, obvious. And I think in the, even in that round one game, they really had Chiochi and uh, Malloy as contributors and since then it's changed drastically for them. So good on them. Um you know, but again, it's back to square one at the start yeah. of next year, really. Definitely. And that's my takeaway for this game is if you can't make finals, does winning matter at this stage of the season? That's kind of appropriate across all all sports and all competitions. At this stage, I think players are playing for their spots. The coach, Wayne Sigman, is definitely coaching for his spot. Mm. Does a win this week and next week and in convincing fashion kind of paper over the cracks of yet another sixth-place season or... Would, is just regardless, it's going to be a full rebuild. Well, we're in a, and this is, we'll kind of touch on this. The VFL having the AFL affiliates this year means that there's a, there'll be a, a portion of this Collingwood group that plays together. 
um, over the offseason. But again, as we've seen, and we've seen a rumour that Katie, Katie Brennan will be returning to Darabin. Obviously, still to be confirmed because none of the clubs will announce who's playing for them in the VFL until the AFLW season is finished. But there's a chance that not all those Collingwood girls will be there. So, it's really hard to know what you're going to get developmentally. But that does make it a slightly different situation over the off-season to what it was last year. Yeah. Um, and one of the advantages and the reasons the club pushed for that system is because they essentially get these girls you know, playing together and training together for a longer portion of the year rather than dispersing amongst the various VFL clubs. That was the argument for the the VFL reshuffle. Um, but moving on from the Magpies, uh, we had probably really the, the game that split this really open um, up in Canberra was uh, the GWS and the Bulldogs. So GWS 7-4-46 got over the Dogs 4-4-28. Uh, look, early on, it looked all things good for the Bulldogs and then the Giants had a huge surge in the second quarter and really laid down the challenge. And from there, the game was... Really a bit of a slog, and I think the Bulldogs probably got back on top in the third quarter, but ultimately the Giants managed to hold it to more or less of a stalemate. Um, Emma Carney, very good, but um, has struggled in front of goal. So she, I think she's kicked 1-5 so far for the year. Um, if there's a weakness in her game, that's probably it. But the story here was really just... I think the weakness is the fact that she has to run the length of the field before she gets to kick the goal. So well, that, yes, yeah, potentially. I think, I think um, you can cut us some slack on that. But... Really, the story here was that the Giants managed to bog the Bulldogs' outside ball movement down. They managed to basically stop them moving it really effectively. And then they were able to expose their lack of contested marking power without Brennan and Huntington in the lineup um, was my sort of biggest takeaway of how the game was played. Um, but for the Giants, uh, it was that familiar pair of Courtney Gum and Cora Staunton who were relentless and really led the charge which ended up getting them over the line. Um, Gum finished the night with a game-high 23 possessions and 10 clearances. Um, probably slim points victor in a head-to-head battle with Emma Carney, who had 22 disposals and eight tackles. Um, I guess that was probably one of the biggest changes in the in the game was that Gum started to sort of get a lev- get level in that battle with Carney over the course of the game, and that really managed to even it up. Um, but she's just been a huge, huge in um, for the Giants. Uh, Monique Conti kicked her first goal. was, again, really impressive for the Bulldogs. I think she was their third possession getter behind Blackburn and uh, obviously Carney. But, yeah, it was one of those off nights, I think, for the Dogs. Yeah, and I think GWS kind of made the point that momentum is really important, and in this case, both in season and in a match. Mm. So they... So they, they've got the momentum at this stage of the season. They've won the last three in a row, I'm pretty sure. Mm. And, you know, after essentially quarter time, they had complete control of this, of this game. And it was just a matter of, we're going to score enough points to, to, to make it up. Um, the other thing there, I think, is the lack of goal reviews means that on that momentum front, you keep the momentum for longer because mm. the decision's just made then and there. Whereas there are a few points in, the, at this, in this game where had a goal review been asked for, it allows Bulldogs to reset, kind of maybe even change the defensive structure and go, how do we, how do we stem this flow against us? Well, you don't get that in AFLW. So maybe that's something that the AFL needs to look at as well. Because I think you, I like to see that game move on quickly as opposed to a goal review which kind of cuts the game dead, mm-hmm. almost like a, like a fifth or sixth interim break. So Yeah, interesting. And the, the outtake from this score to was really that uh, it probably calls into question whether we do a final series because you kind of get that every week. So this was essentially a qualifying final um, and it really leaves the competition 
perched precariously, almost with two preliminary finals for the final week of the season. Um, again, hard to know how finals would change all of this. I think we know that they're still on the table. Yeah, I think with such a short, short season, though, having finals, you just get this, you get this game again. There's no, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, the difference in the in the AFL M obviously is you know you've got 22 rounds. You might only play a team once, and then it's like, well, really, you're going to judge it on EPL style. You beat that team twice, you take the the championship. Well, no, we want to, we want to see that battle again. Whereas, as it will be the case next week, we'll see Western Bulldog Melbourne play off. And then they could have put off again, which kind of, yeah, would have been a little bit skew if. But now, <laughs> with the joy of this this pseudo-qualification final happening in rounds six and seven, that actually becomes the the preliminary final, yeah. essentially, to play yeah, off yeah. into. So. And so the final game spiralling into all of this was Carlton. 3-4-22 were defeated comfortably by Melbourne 8-9-57. The biggest story out of this one was the Mel Hickey. ACL, which will have her out for the rest of the year, which was a, a huge blow for the competition. Um, I think that's the fifth ACL we've seen in seven, six rounds. Mm-hmm. So we're going at comfortably one a week, which again is something that I think they're constantly discussing and talking about. The The story here though in the game was really that it was a massive quarter time blowout um, and Melbourne potentially missed a chance to build on their percentage, though the way that the cookies have all crumbled, it probably won't be that important um, for Melbourne. Um, it'll very, very much be about the win-loss for them over the course of the weekend. Um, but you, what did you make of this one, Gordon? Not much at all, really. Coming to this, you kind of already knew that Carlton were essentially the bottom team in this ten, in this pool of eight and that Melbourne were at least in the top three, if not number one on their day. And so they did what they did. They they got the win. They got the lead early. They held on to it, and it was a pretty, pretty cruisy day out for them. Um my takeaway and question for you is how, if you were the Carlton list manager or the football operations manager, how would you go about retaining players in your roster next year with the expansion coming along? Because obviously, if you're a mid tier Carlton player, you become a top tier player at one of these new AFLW clubs. And what, what would ha- what, what is there for you to stay at Carlton currently? Because they've had two seasons of, Fairly mediocre results, and without the uplift at the end, they're like uh, Collingwood would have ended their seasons with a bit of hope, like stick around next year because we've finished on a high. Whereas Carlton kind of fizzled out in both seasons. Yeah, their energy's kind of died, and I think the only way you can really sell this is with a little bit of hope based on the injuries that they've had at various times. But I don't think that's enough. It's really inter- it'll be interesting to see, and we'll talk about this in future weeks in terms of how the the competition restructures the talent so that it, we don't get two expansion teams that get you know thumped. But it's probably not a good time to be sitting at the bottom of the ladder and not having won in the last six games of the year. Simply because if you're, uh, and you talk about that, like Vessio's had pretty poor service all year and hasn't really gotten going after being the leading goal kicker. Harris obviously moving in, you know, she's been struggling. Davies obviously not there, but I think those mid-tier girls will be something that, like if you were targeting someone, you'd be targeting someone from a club that's likely to want to leave. And, you know, if I was North Melbourne, I'd be going after someone like Vessio. Like just because she's more likely to want to leave, and I'm not saying she will. I'm just, I'm just putting her name there as a as a hypothetical. She works at Carlton, so I doubt that she would actually go. But yeah, I mean, you can only sell the injury narrative, you know, and that I think is what you have to go off. Um, but it's not a good time to bottom out. It's like you know, we saw expansion in AFL and made it really difficult. And I don't think it'll be quite as bad, but. It does hammer home that it's not an easy thing to win. You know, everyone kind of looked at this and, oh, we'll get an AFLW premiership under the belt early. 
and it's going to become very, very difficult to win this very, very quickly. You know, 10 teams trying to get one Premier. It's not a case of everyone will get one in the first six or seven years. It's like there'll be teams that actually have, you know, established the makings of a 10, 15, 20-year W drought here. Mm. Maybe Carlton will be one, which really doesn't bother me because I hate Carlton. (laughs) Fair enough too then. And so on to the People's Champion, and we'll start at the one vote, Erin Phillips from Adelaide. As I've said, she's got no legs. She's barely got any arms, apparently. She's a walking wounded... That's not true. Her guns are unbelievable. (laughs) She's a walking wounded soldier, but she got three goals from nine touches and yet again just provided that vocal point in the Crows forward line to set this game up for them. And as long as she gets on the field, it looks like the Crows are going to win games. Uh, two votes go to Christina Bernardi from Collingwood. And it, she is what Collingwood's needed all year. And she's kind of taken that, taken the spotlight and run with it and really embraced being the, the focal point for the Pies. Uh, three goals and 16 touches and really did, was the fire starter in that, in that massive win. Uh, three votes goes to Emma Kearney. It was, the one-on-one battle that we love to see, all of the uh, AFLM nuffies around the days, like, we want to see more midfield matchups. We want to see more Mano a Mano. Well, we got Mano a Mano with Kearney and Gum. Kearney came off second best, so she claims the three points, um, and therefore Gum claims the four points. Twenty-three touches and a competition all-time equal best of ten clearances. That's a stunning run of form that matches Geosa's run to maybe a finals appearance. And five votes goes to Sarah Allen from Adelaide. It's good to see a defender take the game by the scruff of the neck and really have that Leo Leo Barry moment, but <laughs> more than once throughout a game. And in that frenetic final five minutes or so, she just kind of, yeah, made sure that Adelaide's finals contention are still alive. So that now takes the leaderboard to a slightly uh, interesting position with one more round of play. Uh, we have Aaron Phillips, uh, Bernardi and Kearney all on six votes. Then we have Gum and Blackburn on nine and Daisy Pierce ahead on 11. And uh, for much vitriol earlier in the season, this uh, voting system's actually worked out not too bad. So, uh, Well done, me. Yeah, Cheers, you've gone all right. You've gone all right. I hope C-Gum wins because I really want to interview her. Uh, she'll be a cracker. All right, so we are going to unscramble the can of worms that is the AFLW ladder. So this was my evening last night and this is a bucket load of fun because calculating percentages, what I am all about. So there's a few hypotheticals. I'm not going to go through the the 17 different scenarios that could occur. First thing here is that Brisbane are basically cooked. So I'm just going to throw that up there really early. Uh, they're about 95% cooked. They're not totally cooked, you know, so you, they're well done, but not you know, frazzled. Um, so they have to win big. The dogs have to flog Melbourne and Adelaide have to lose. And all of that will not happen because Sportsbet will give you $166 for the Bulldogs to win by 40 plus into the Lions and the Pies. And they'll give you $41 if you take the dogs by over 41 into the Lions and the Pies. Basically, Brisbane probably won't make the grand final. If they do, you know, I'll do something stupid. Um, the Bulldogs could still make it even with a loss to Melbourne, but they would uh, require... Adelaide and GWS to both lose. And then you would probably get the repeat Melbourne Dogs grand mm-hmm. final. So the other thing here is that percentage is probably not a massive factor because of the draw that Adelaide and GWS played out. So it essentially becomes uh, if both of them win, they'll be needing to be separated on percentage. So you'll end up with, I think you need a 23-point swing to Adelaide for them to overtake GWS. So if Adelaide win and overtake GWS on percentage, it would be them playing the Dogs or Melbourne. 
So it essentially becomes the winner of the Dogs in Melbourne versus Adelaide or GWS. Um, obviously, if GWS lose to Brisbane, it's probably then Adelaide. Um, if GWS win, it's probably in their own hands um, in much the same way as it is with the Dogs and Brisbane. So my... Sorry, the Dogs in Melbourne. So my biggest outtake here, really, I think the most likely result is a Dogs versus GWS grand final. Oh, you're backing um, the Dogs to, to I, come back I'm backing against the dogs, the Melbourne. I'm backing the Dogs to get up on the weekend. But again, it could just as easily be a Melbourne Crows grand final. So it really hinges on those results. I don't think Adelaide will overtake GWS on percentage because I think Collingwood are probably going well enough not to get thumped. Um, but again, Brisbane have been you know, a lockdown team all year. And again, they've still got a bit to play for because there is a chance. Um, but yeah, it essentially now you look at Saturday night and it'll be the winner in and GWS get up, you probably look at them in. And if they don't, you're probably going to Adelaide. And that's pretty much how it lies. Um, it's going to be a really thrilling conclusion because you've essentially got two prelim finals and then a little, I don't know, side final, wild card game maybe, I don't know. Um, that's kind of my, my take. And I kind of fancy the dogs because KB is going to be back in business and you reckon she could just storm in off you know no no base nothing you're basically well reselling her season you're first. also taking hickey out and then putting kb in so there's a bit of a net equation there yeah um i mean again i think it just adds and even just the presence i think that she will bring in terms of it, it will allow someone like Brooke Lachlan who's been marked pretty heavily to have potentially more space because I don't think you commit your best defender to Lachlan ahead of KB yeah um, as much as I know that KB generally is a pretty lead up player you know but she's still she's an elite kick of the footy as well which is really good and the final outtake really I can't believe I'm saying this but I actually want GWS to make the grand final which is the total polar opposite story to how everyone feels about the GWS men because this GW's women's team came in at, I mean, they really, they came in at the same time as all the other clubs, um, were rock bottom last year and have just improved out of sight without, you know, they haven't had massive draft concessions and, and all the rest. So I'm actually, yeah, I think they've done a terrific job. Um, and I kind of, I mean, I guess that when I've said I've tipped the dogs and GWS, that's the grand final that I'd like to see. Yeah. I wouldn't mind seeing a dogs Adelaide grand final, but I could, if I could write the script, yeah. considering the other script I want to see is, uh, a Melbourne Dogs Grand Final, and for that they'd have to draw both. They draw their game. Yeah, and I did actually have a little note here that uh, a draw would, I think, potentially just throw it all out. Um, like I just that would just be sponsored. <laughs> like I just that would potentially mean that we'd have four teams level on points if Melbourne drew with the Dogs, because then you'd have a four point mm. game and a two point game, which would bring everyone level. You could potentially, I think, have Brisbane. No, Brisbane will be two points behind because they wouldn't have yeah. a draw. But then you'd have 14 separate on percentage. So please don't have a draw at the Whitnoble because my calculator will explode. The only thing that is interesting from a dog's point of view is that their most likely grand final matchups are both teams that they've lost to. So they lost to Adelaide in, a, in probably the, one of the best games of the year. They lost to GWS. So, and I think the only thing I would say is that uh, going into that game, Melbourne have a better record against the good teams. And I think, I don't know whether that counts for much in terms of the result on Saturday, but um, the Dogs have stumbled against, you know, two of those teams that are in that lockdown and they haven't played Melbourne yet. So their only win was against Brisbane, against a real top-rate side. Don't know what that means. 
So we're going to launch into the next phase of our AFL men's season preview. Some teams we want to talk about. So I'm going to talk about the Bulldogs. Um, it's been a very, very Bulldog-themed week with the win from the universe, talking to Flanners, so on. Gordo's going to talk about Port Adelaide, who I think we mentioned, but you're going to go into this in a little bit more detail because uh, you love them. Um, yep. And I've always been a lover of the Bulldogs. I am, uh, I don't know why, I'm, I'm an emotional person. I love the little run to the flag. I had a teary on grand final day. Christ, I spend most of September crying these days. It's always so emotional. Um, but I'm not sure about the Dogs this year. So just to go over their last three seasons, last year they finished 11-11 with a percentage of 97.1. Um, the top four last year was at 15-7. and seven. Um the year before they were 15 and 7, so I maintain that before they went on to win the flag, they were one of the best seventh place teams in terms of the win loss. Um, the win in 2016, sorry, the four in 2016 was 16 and 6. In 2015, they were 14 and 8. Um, two, three, and four were all on 16 wins and six losses. So I, I think they've been comfortably in a, in a bracket that's just outside the four for two of those seasons until last year. To put it in perspective, Essendon and West Coast were seventh and eighth last year. They were 12 and 10. So they were a full three seats, three wins behind where the Bulldogs were in 2016. So I still maintain that they were as good a seventh place team as we've ever had, which obviously translated into them going on to win the flag. Their JLT results were a 22-point win against the Hawks and their loss by 33 points to Collingwood on the weekend. They were, of course, the first team last year to miss the eight since Hawthorne in 2008. So their 2017 season and the story really of what went wrong is not a complicated one. They just really struggled to get the ball inside 50 efficiently. So they were still the best team in the comp transitioning off halfback statistically, but their attack rating last year was only better than Frio and Carlton, and they were fourth last in the comp for actual uh, actual score. So, generally, their inside efficiency, inside fifty efficiency, was ten percent below the AFL average, and that's kind of the main statistic for the Dogs that really hurt them. So, they were ranked seventeenth in terms of inside fifty efficiency differential, which is their efficiency rate against their opponents. They were also last in the contested marks differential, so they were comfortably the worst contested marking team in the competition. So in 2017, despite where they finished, they were actually still the second best team in the comp in terms of the inside 50s they gave up. And they were fifth in terms of generating inside 50s themselves. So the ball's going in there plenty. Um, They were plus 5.1 on the inside 50 differential last year, which left them fourth. So they were generally getting the ball inside more than the team that they were playing against by a decent margin. Um, to contrast their statistic last year, in 2016, they were second in the comp for inside 50 differential plus 10. So there was still a five, a little drop off, obviously, from 16 to 17, but that's really not where the issue is. So I was watching them on the weekend and Eddie Maguire at one stage said that every time the Bulldogs go inside 50, they score, which is just not true. When Eddie Maguire said that, um, the Bulldogs had eight shots from 21 entries for 38% efficiency going inside 50. Well, it's almost, you know, every single time. But give or take 70%. Yeah, give or take <laughs> give or take 62%. <laughs> so uh, on the weekend against Collingwood, they, and this is kind of where, and I don't sell a lot of store by JLT, but I think it does evidence the narrative. So they had 55 inside 50s for 20 shots. So 36% efficiency. Uh, the competition average, what did we say it was, Gordo? 
46%. Is 46%. So they were well below the competition average by 10%, in fact. Um, they were narrowly beaten around the ball, but really the biggest difference in this game was that. So Collingwood went at uh, 64 inside 50s for 33 shots, 64% efficiency. Their problem was that they were 40% accuracy. So they kicked 16 goals, 17. This should have been a murder just based on the inside 50 count and the kicking, oh, sorry, the efficiency of those inside 50s. And the proof was really in the pudding early in the game. They, I reckon they had about eight repeat entries, shallow entries, didn't really get anywhere, didn't generate a shot on goal. Um, and a lot of the time they were just blazing long into their forward 50, which for them is criminal because um, in this game they were beaten in contested marking 18 to 9. They were beaten in marks inside 50, 23 to 8. They were also smashed in the tackles, although that's a little bit of a side statistic, but they generally don't have a good amount of marking power. And that was exactly what showed last year when they were the worst contested marking team in the comp. So that ball coming into their forward 50 high just doesn't help them at all because they don't have the quality and the timber. So that was JLT2. JLT1 against Hawthorne, they um, put in a much, much, much better, much better showing so they had uh, 52 inside 50s to 46 and went at 54%. So 24 shots from 46. Um, so they were, you know, more efficient. Sorry. They had 46 inside 50s to 52, but they actually, so they lost that count. But they generated 24 shots from their 46 inside 50s. So 54% efficiency, which is about the league average. That obviously converted into a win, but they had a 20% drop off in their efficiency from JLT1 to JLT2. What does that tell me? Well, the biggest thing is even when they beat the Hawks, they were still beaten in contested marking. So they were still beaten 14 to 12. And that's one of the reasons that I don't think their efficiency is great going in. Um, obviously, Trengrove is an in for them is potentially really important. I think there's still massive question marks over Boyd and Shacky. Um, the Shack has had six disposals in two JLT games for one goal. So I'm not... Like, he's not going to be the answer to their contested marking problem. He's most likely to play in a lead-up wing sort of role. Boyd is still MIA, not sure where he is. Trangrove, for what it's worth, um, had 24 touches and four marks in JLT2. So he may offer them some solution to the issue. I don't necessarily think he is going to solve it. So the question for the dogs really is for them to make the eight, they have to get more out of their entries. So the ball goes in there plenty. At the moment, they just don't do enough with it. My question is, I'm not sure that that's going to happen. Um, the main reason is that they've lost Boyd and Murphy, who have retired, and they're two of their, I think, best prime users. And I don't think they've added that contested marking power that they needed. Obviously, even after their premiership, they went and got Cramery and uh, Cloak, neither of whom really did a massive job for them. So, I don't know. This is really weird for me, but I'm not actually convinced, and I can't believe I'm saying this, that the dogs are going to make the eight, Gordon. Well, so my devil's advocate question is, if you don't think the dogs are going to make the eight this year, then where are Richmond going to finish? Because that is what you've just described as Richmond's problem in inverted commas. So the entrance of, of Trengrove and Shaki into this, into this lineup would suggest that you could now hit it long bring it down in the contest and then use frontal pressure to keep the ball in the forward 50. So the problem that they need to address is not so much their efficiency inside 50, but making sure that the ball stays within that probably 70, 70 media mm-hmm. radius from goal. 
And so shallow entries are the issue. And so then the issue becomes not our contested marking in the forward line, but our actual use of the ball in the midfield to get isolation so we can go longer inside 50. Because that's how Richmond won last year. Yeah. They, they, had, they had great use of the football and they won the football in isolation in midfield, drove forward and then kicked long and deep and then just locked the ball in. And then it wasn't, it wasn't so much about efficiency going inside 50. It was about how much time did we spend in our forward half. Yeah. And I, I think that Richmond and the Bulldogs have a similar blueprint of game plan in terms of the way that they're trying to do this without necessarily having the tools. But I, do you, I don't think there's the quality on the Bulldogs list to apply the sort of pressure that Richmond apply in their forward 50. I don't know whether you disagree with that, but I don't think they've got the, the type of speed demons that Richmond have up there. Like, well, they did in 2016, and those players are still there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so I, like their small, their small mid forwards and their midfielders mm-hmm. uh, are all still there, except for their halfbacks in in, in Boyd and, and Murphy. Mm-hmm. So they they they're losing that transition play, but again, that doesn't seem to be the fault. If they're getting the ball still inside 50, mm-hmm. the issue there is keeping it inside 50. If you don't have a tall forward to hit up mm-hmm. and Discounting Trengove and Shacky seems a bit harsh because yeah, they're what they're they're two games into it. They are, yeah. I mean, I think that my feeling is that they'll miss, but but if they make it, it'll be on the back of dramatic improvements in that efficiency and the time the ball spends in there. I think Trengove and Shacky still have a role to play. The only thing I would say, and this is a point that I discussed when I chatted to Flanners, is the. The spine of Richmond's team, if you're comparing them and their game plans, I think Richmond's spine is just better. You know, you've got an all-Australian fullback, an all-Australian full forward, and two Brownlow medalists in the middle. I'm not sure that you have that at the Dogs, just in terms of the outright quality of the top end. Yeah, you're missing you're missing the bookends. Mm. You've got the middle though. Well, you've got Bond, and you've got McRae, and you've got Liber, and you've got Dalhouse. So I think they've got well, they've got a lot of good midfielders. I don't know that they have the quality at the other ends of the park that Richmond have and I think it I mean yeah I don't think that they're totally I think it's well I think it's very hard to write anyone off but on what I can see I'm not uber keen on sticking them in my eight which is very unlike me because I am a a dog loving a dog loving man as everyone who listens to this podcast knows Um, the dog's locked outside just in case anyone was wondering Um, any final comments there Gordo? Yeah I think it just clarifies or emphasizes the fact that making the eight now is becoming incredibly harder each each year. So mm-hmm. since expansion, it's been almost easy to kind of pick your eight, set and forget. Whereas now there's usually... 13, 14. Yeah. All but four teams, really. So there's probably usually each year four teams that really struggle. I think this year will probably be one team that really struggles hard and then three and then the rest are all kind of challenging for a spot in the eight. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, if you, if you have a deficiency that's so easy to point out, so in here, the deficiency is efficiency inside 50 or, or various things to do with that KPI, then yeah, you're going to struggle to make the eight. You really have to have an all round game to, to progress and you need to have a very solid and elite all round game to, to contend. And I think at this stage of the year, everyone's going to want to put someone in a ladder position, but it's much easier to bracket teams. Yeah, and to me, the dogs are a tenth to sixth. Bracket. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I don't think they're going to go above sixth. I'd be surprised if they miss the eight and finish thirteenth, fourteenth. Mm. But I think that, that they will be, you know, fighting with. I think probably your Essendon's, your West Coasts, um, and maybe who else is probably around that mark? Collingwood, Collingwood, 
um, to sort of, and I, I even think Geelong, but that's a different controversial opinion, um, will be in that sixth to 10th bracket fighting for the bottom two spots in the eight. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's because I just think there are, there are teams in this comp that are clearly, you know, I think will have better years than them. Um, the only thing I would say with the Bulldogs is I think their culture, which has been built on uh, Luke Beveridge and, of course, on Bob Murphy, is pretty good. Um, and I think that from what I can see, Liber is set to have a cracking year. On If you take one thing from your JLT form, it certainly looks like he didn't spend too much time buggerizing around in Bali over the summer. Um, so, yeah, sort of an interesting one. I think it's really interesting. The year after the hangover is actually an intriguing plot line anyway because everyone can kind of still remember it but everyone's kind of now rendered it irrelevant. Yeah. You know. So. That'd be that'd be a good book title for the year of the hangover for the dogs. Obviously got wing, a wink from the universe is the year of the premiership. We had the year of the dogs no, in and then, and, then, and then buggerizing in Bali is uh, is the year of 2017. I think so. just the phrase buggerizing around in Bali is, uh, you know, there's you know, buggerizing, underrated and buggerizing under- around in Bethlehem, like it's not quite the same. Yeah, as much as Bethlehem is a good word and the birthplace of Jesus, but we're now going out on a religious tangent. So I'm going to throw across to I'm going to just throw the hand pass to Gordon. Gordon, Port Adelaide. Yep. Talk so I am all aboard the Port Adelaide train <whistles> when it comes to. Uh, and again, we've mentioned it, but the bookies have set the 2018 win-loss line at 13 and a half wins. And if I was a betting man, Which I'd be are. taking over 13 and a half wins at $1.95. And here is why. There's a certain thing called the Pythagorean prediction model <laughs> when it comes to uh, team sports. You essentially take the points that the team scores versus the points that they concede, and you put it into the Pythagorean model. That is the right-handed triangle. And it comes out with a predicted wins reference and actually charts pretty well when looking at wins across the history of sports. So last year, Ad- uh, Port Adelaide severely underachieved by about two wins uh, in comparison to the points that they scored and the points that they conceded. So they were the second highest scoring team last year behind Adelaide. Um, and that alone shows that I think more often than not, especially... Getting to the finals, you have to score heavily to, to get the high positions. Then you can go and do the Richmond and pressure and defend strongly to, to go and win those finals positions. So the pivot may be necessary, but in terms of where Adelaide finished, Port Adelaide finished is this year, scoring is more important than, than, than Well, I think it's that age old adage of most premiership teams score over 100 and concede under 80 or something on average. I don't know the exact numbers, but generally most premiership teams have an average of over 100 points over the history of the game. Yeah. And so then the second part of this is the eye test. So of their 14 wins last year in 2017, they had these kind of chunks of of matches. They had good wins against Sydney and West Coast, where in previous years they're they're probably teams they would have lost to. They had close losses to Adelaide Geelong, West Coast in the elimination final, Richmond and the Bulldogs. The Bulldogs is probably the only unacceptable one of those close losses. And you would have thought, based on your prediction, that they claim that win back this year. When did they play them? Uh, towards the uh, middle, f- the second third of the year. Yeah, because I'm a big believer in not just when, not just playing teams twice, but when you actually play them. Because Richmond last year played the Bulldogs early when they were still, there was an extent of them being up and about. So yeah. I think that's also a factor sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and then they had... The aberration loss to, to Collingwood again later in the year when they probably definitely shouldn't have lost to Collingwood. 
and two totally uh, acceptable losses in my books to GWS, who are a class unit, and Melbourne, who is everyone's smoky for the top four this year. So out of those ones that they lost, they probably get guaranteed in inverted brackets, uh, inverted commas, uh, the, the loss against Western Bulldogs and the loss against Collingwood back, and I don't see them losing to any teams that they won against last year. So that takes you to 16 wins just on the on the eye test. Then going on to my holy quadrant of stats, which I'll, I'll jump in the show notes for you, but that is, again, to remind you, points per inside 50, goal assists, goal accuracy, and clangers, and you take the percentage difference to the league average and you multiply it together, divide by the clanger difference, and it gives you the attack rating. And so the strange thing here is, despite scoring the second most actual points last year in 2017, they ranked 12th in the attack rating, which means that they were hugely inefficient in, in attack, but highly effective, which gives you a massive upstroke. So they're kind of like if you look at the stock exchange system, there are, there are stuff that's about to go gangbusters. Everything in the business is looking good. They just haven't capitalized on their processes yet. So you look at their game style last year, they had the most inside 50s per game with 59. The average is 53. And overall, when they at their best, they're playing attacking forward first football and a very good brand, almost an Adelaide-like brand of, of football. Mm. So the last part is the cherries on top. So in the trade period, they lost Jackson Trengrove, Aaron Young, Jarman Impey, Brandon Archie, Logan Austin, and Matthew Loeb. And the ins were Tom Rockcliffe, Jack Watts, and Stephen Motlop. And some draft picks, which they, they future-proof themselves now as well for the, for the coming years yeah. and coming seasons. So if you take the champion data player ratings... <laughs> You can make a comparison to the actual in-outs and the value of those. So they, in their three premium uh, players they lost, they lost Trengove, Young and Impey, who all played significant game time in Port Adelaide in 2017, which equaled a total of 965 points at an uh, average of 320 points. What they got back in was uh, 1,222 points in Rockcliffe, Watts and Motlop, for a difference of plus 257. So they brought three players in and essentially got themselves an extra average player on top of that in, in worth and uh, an average increase per player of 87, 85.7. Mm. So you're looking at half a player improvement for every player that they lost. So that yeah. alone really lifts it. And so then that's over the whole squad. If you actually go to their match day 11, uh, match day 22, and what I've taken is their elimination final squad, they had against West uh, West Coast. The only player that they lose out of that squad was Jarman Impey, and you put in Rockcliffe, Motlop, and Watts, and you see then another increase, uh, an increase in 752 points. So take one player out, put three in, but you get two more players worth increase on top of that based on the average uh, player rating. Um, and overall, it's a, it's a far stronger side. So when you add Rockcliffe in with the likes of Wines, Broke and Ebert, even Powell Pepper with another season under his belt. You can play, I'm playing Watts as a general defender here, but he can also play as, as the small forward as well. So he can play as a swing man. Or he could play as the 100 goal centre half forward. Or he could play as the 100 goal centre half forward. And you put Motlop in as the mercurial small forward next to Robbie Gray and Chad Wingard. And suddenly you've got a very, very convincing Port Adelaide 22 mm-hmm. if they all go on the park. Mm-hmm. So... For my long story short is the inclusions of Rockcliffe, Watts and Motlop and their game style make Port Adelaide a top four preseason lock in inverted commas because nothing's a lock at this stage of the year uh, and in all, for all intents and purposes a premiership contender. Yeah, I, 
don't really have it in me to disagree. I'm not convinced about Motlop. I'm super convinced about Rockcliffe, and I think Watts will only get better away from Melbourne. Um, I think Watts is an absolute gun. I wanted him at Richmond desperately while he was on the table and we didn't get it done, and it's one of the biggest disappointments of my life. But he won't kick 100 goals, but he will be highly effective. And I I mean, what I do take, and I watched a bit of the JLT, which was Port and Adelaide. I don't know how much he set by those games, but Port did get up, and it was a pretty, pretty high-scoring contest. The showdowns are going to be hot this year. Hot, because... They are both, they're not only going to be showdowns, but they're going to be really, I think, clashes between two top four teams. Um, at Adelaide Oval, there'll be absolutely unbelievable viewing um, when we get to them. And I actually think there's every chance that Port Adelaide could have a better season than the Crows, um, or certainly take those showdowns. Um, Especially if you buy into culture, because I think at the end of the last year, we yeah, saw that yeah. there were some refs in between players and the infighting really went. Yeah, at each other hard after that grand final loss and we saw the things with the believer mm. outtakes and all that kind of stuff and maybe Tech's not being the right person to be captain. Whereas at Port Adelaide, I think they've built all the all of the possible outward statements for Port Adelaide have suggested that, you know, it's a very inclusive environment. Everyone's on board with Kenny mm. English's philosophies. Everyone's on board with leadership philosophies. And even a guy like Tom Rockcliffe, who's been kind of pilloried at... Brisbane has now been put straight into the leadership group and obviously they see potential in him. Mm. The same with Watts have welcomed him and said, you know, he's really got something to offer. Same with Motlop. And they're all, they're three blokes that have always been on the outer at their clubs previously mm. and now they've been fully embraced at this one. And yeah. just the power that that has. And we you know we've, we've had these writers on talking about the effect of culture and inclusiveness in a club and how much if, if everyone feels like they have a spot, even if they don't have a spot in the 22, but they have a spot in the club how powerful that is. Mm. When you have those blokes in the 22 as well, I think it's a it's a, it's an underrated but very valuable thing to have. Yeah, and that was echoed in the Cubs organisation in baseball that I just finished reading about in a spectacular book. Um, but, I, I mean, for me, that you've probably hit the nail on the head there. That's my question mark over Adelaide is they've got this constant issue and, again, they've got Sloan and Sloan's contract, so they've got that little nugget hanging over them. And I think for Port Adelaide, you know, Jack Watts said to Paul Roos when Paul Roos arrived at Melbourne that he just wanted to be treated like a person. And so he's had a pretty, uh, in club land, not a positive experience for years. So I think for him and I think for Motlop as well, and I also think for Rockliffe who copped a lot of probably unfair flack at Brisbane, um, I think there's a lot for those players that they'll gain out of being in a strong culture. And I think that's probably a tick for Port Adelaide. And when you add that to their on-field prowess, I think it makes for a potentially really damaging team. Because um, we have seen the last two premiers were really built around that idea of connection as much as they were around any particular game plan. Um, so final JLT discussion point. Uh, the uh, the Dangerfield hamstring, uh, the severity to be confirmed. Well, he's dodging Steve with pretty much ease. So Which is great. It can't be, uh, can't be that bad. No, I think uh, whether he misses or not remains to be seen. Ablett also in doubt, which again, Geelong with Melbourne first up, is that's a tough start at the G. The MCC will be going mental. Um, and also Goldsack out for the year with an ACL for the Collingwood. That's the biggest one so far. That's yeah. the biggest loss this year, and that's a massive out for the Pies. Um, and that was really just the injury wrap. We'll kind of obviously see where Dangerfield and Ablett end up. But, uh, yeah, there has been a bit of amusement in the Steve-O dodging stakes, which should be a sport. So the people's question this week, it's been all the rage, uh, this talk of the mid-season trade period or a revamp to how we do our rookie work. Damien Hardwick has been a really vocal advocate of mid-season player movement, calling the AFL or this current structure behind the times and farcical. 
um, particularly because in recent years, uh, Hardwick has had a free list position because of Chris Yaron, first of all, and now because of Ben Griffiths taking off to play some college football. So the first point, and I think this is a really important point to emphasize, is that we are comparing ourselves to American models where the CBAs are huge. So just to put this into perspective, the average salary in Major League Baseball is $4 million US, which equates to roughly $5 million Australian. The average AFL salary is $371,000 Australian after our new CBA. So just to compare the two, that means that the lowest Major League Baseball salary, which is set at $690,000 Australian dollars annually, is like double the average salary in the AFL, the average, so the middle of the range. Um, that says a lot. The players in Major League Baseball, as is pretty well known, don't really have a huge amount of veto on their trade unless they have what they call 10 and 5 rights, which basically means that if you've been in the uh, Major Leagues for 10 years and you've been for five years on the same team, you can veto a trade. Um, that's pretty much all they have. Like So other than that, these Major League Baseballers who are earning virtually nearly a million dollars Australian a year, unless you're a squad player, uh, can basically be sent to any organization on a whim. So my point and the reason that we want to raise these facts is it's a bit of like a reality check. It's very easy to say we should have mid-season trades. You've got to think about who's going to be traded. So you're not going to be trading Patrick Dangerfield in July, earning what over a million dollars a year. You're going to be trading list position number 38, who's on, I don't know, maybe say $200,000 a year. And you're asking Mr. $200,000 a year, to move from Adelaide to Perth to start playing with West Coast halfway through a season. Um, again, we have to make sure that the players maintain some sort of veto on this. Otherwise, it just becomes a free-for-all and we don't have the money to allow it to become a free-for-all from a player rights point of view, which is a point that has been made by AFL footy ops boss Stephen Hocking, um, who kind of raised this as a problem when he was quizzed by the West Australian in February about this. So two things there, I think you've taken a quite a fortuitous example from the MLB, all those stats and facts are correct, the MLB probably has also the biggest players union in American sport or mm-hmm. in global sport, and so yes, they, they can't veto it, but because you know they've guaranteed themselves salaries upwards of half a million dollars a year, they're, they're alright to move around now, they say, well that's fair enough by us, like, you know, we'll cop it sweet. NBA and NFL have the same mid-season trades and they have no guarantees. So in NBA, you can you, the only guarantee you have is whatever contract you're on, so minimum of three years. If you get cut from the list, which you can be at any time, you get the payout, but you, you can't get guaranteed another squad. Mm-hmm. And, you can be, and you can be traded at any time um, unless you've negotiated uh, vetoes. And no trade clause. Yeah, yeah. no trade Which clause. you can put into your contract as a Major League Baseball. Yes. Uh, and the same with NFL, and NFL is even worse because they have non-guaranteed uh, contracts. Because mm. yeah, the, the NFL, for many things, is a terrible, terrible organization. Um, what what I think it's overplayed here is the lifestyle effect of moving from Perth to Adelaide, or Adelaide to Melbourne, or Melbourne to Brisbane. At the end of the day, everyone who's playing AFL is between the age of eighteen and thirty-five. They've all got. They may have young families at, at the very worst, but a lot of time they're spending time away from those young families anyway. Like a training lifestyle is not really one of the, the stay at home, the stay at home dad. You're pretty much at Clubland pretty much all the time. You're controlled by Clubland all the time. And if you want to pursue, you know, coming into a career in professional sport, 
you're not pursuing a regular career. You're here for a short period of time. And I think most people, when you ask them, would say, I would happily get traded or ask for a trade for more playing time and potentially more money in the long run or more playing success than to stick around and then wait and waste, you know, 12 weeks on the bench or outside the squad and then have to negotiate my trade outside the season. I'm not saying that the players wouldn't go for that. I think that it still has to be a decision that they can make. If someone's offering them playing time elsewhere, they they can still turn that down based yeah. on the lifestyle factors. I just think that you can't get into a situation where they can't say no is really all I'm trying to advocate for. Okay, because I think now we have it too much the other way where draftees especially are claiming homesickness halfway through their rookie rookie contract where most kids who don't play professional sport move away from home regardless and learn to live without mums and dads. Mm-hmm. So I, feel like, I feel like this whole lifestyle, the, the obsession with maintaining lifestyle and maintaining the, the player advocacy for their right to their certain lifestyle is a bit rich when they're getting paid way above the median average wage from an Australian person anyway. They are, yeah. I'll agree with that. I'm still not convinced that we should just be able to send them from one city to another without clarifying it with them. No. I, like, I, don't, I still don't think that's fair. I understand what you're saying, and I understand that most players, if they were given an opportunity to move to Adelaide and have playing time and they're a 22-year-old without a wife, then they'd probably take it because they want to play AFL and they want to actually, you know, that's what football would want. They want to play at the highest level. So a lot of them would still take a mid-season trade option. I'm just not sure that you shouldn't impose it, basically all I'm saying. Yeah. You should be able to walk into the office and go, hey, Gordo, you've been traded to the Tigers uh, from, you know, the D- Detroit Tigers, but you've been traded to, and you're going to West Coast. So like, that shouldn't happen. And no. you, you could then be able to say, nah, I don't want to live in Perth, sorry, and stay there. That, that should be how that process goes. But if you go, okay, great, yeah, Perth, sweet, you know, Rod, Roddy, I'll just get over there and have a blast, then great, go. Yeah, I just want at the end of the day, this is the part people forget is that I'm not actually an employer of Richmond Football Club. If I'm playing for Richmond, I'm an employer of the AFL. So, so mm-hmm. yeah, that's the part. That's the part I think people skim over a bit too much. And also, I think it just doesn't allow. It doesn't doesn't allow. This is not a regu- This is not a regular business. It's not a regular uh, occupation setting. It is, it is professional sport. Mm-hmm. And so the, where the AFL wants to go with this and where the AFL wants to go with the rights, and the players have to come, kind of realise that with that becomes different challenges with, with increased money and increased benefits. I mean, my preferential option here, and, and this is kind of something that has been discussed, would be to have like an unsigned free agency pool, which essentially constitutes state league players who can be signed by an AFL club as either a list replacement for someone like Ben Griffiths who pulls out after the list deadline or as a temporary injury replacement, for example. If you have a 90-day injury, you can place someone on a DL list, disabled list, and then uh, pull someone up. Um, Interesting responses to this from state league competitions. So as a concept, it was something that Hardwick floated. Like if someone's playing great footy in the AFL, why don't we just give them this as a step up to... Sorry, in the VFL, why don't we give them this as a step up to the AFL? Andy Collins, who coaches down at Williamstown, um, kind of is cool with it, um, thinks it's good for his players or VFL players in general to get the opportunity. And I guess the argument that is that then it takes away from the purity of the state league because you've got players leaving, but... I think for a lot of clubs, particularly in the VFL, they pride themselves on that anyway and being able to produce AFL listed players. And I know something that, that's something that Williamstown are generally quite proud of as a club, that they are the club that produced 
Kane Lambert and Liam Picken and Adam Marcons, who's now captain there, spent two or three years on a Richmond list. They're, that's something that they love in their DNA. Yeah, no, I totally agree with all of that. Um, it kind of does right in the face of what you've said before about not forcing players to move state if they don't want to. It would be a pretty hard thing to turn down. It's like, here's your opportunity to go from the state league to the AFL. You will start next week. It'll only last for six weeks. And uh, by the way, you're playing in Perth. You've taken me out of context, though. I'm not like if that player has the right to say no, then that's, the that's not all gonna, I'm asking for. Yeah, yeah. The player he can say no. But he's he, not going to. Yeah, well, he's not going to because he's a state league footballer. Yeah. Right. So if someone says, "Okay, here's your opportunity," but if you're like, and this is, it has to be in the hands of the player because only the player knows their personal circumstances. Is the point that I'm trying to make. Um, like, I'm not saying that no players should ever be allowed to move from Melbourne to Perth. Yeah. But I'm saying if you're like a 32-year-old VFL player with a wife and 17 children and a sick <laughs> grandmother, then you're probably not going to take your contract in Perth and that has to be your option. Where there has been some opposition to this is in the Sandful and the Waffle. Uh, don't know why it's the South Australian National Football League because it's not a national comp, but we'll deal with that later. But the Waffle, still the greatest comp name. Um, it's a bit of, a bit of conjecture because they kind of have a different sort of argument here to the VFL clubs. Um, in the fact that um, you want to give players a, a pathway, but they don't like the disruption that this would pose to SANFL lists in the middle of the year. What do you make of that? No, it makes fair enough. It just depends on whether or not they're willing to promote their own leagues enough so they are become proper standalone leagues. Like, I think we'll go on to it a little bit, but you know, major major league baseball at AAA, AA and single A <laughs> exists pure, pretty much exclusively for the for the purpose of farming talent to a stage where it can play in the major league. Well, that's pretty much the baseball system. That's the baseball system. It's such an ingrained thing. Mm. I don't know if anyone could ever tell you who won AAA. Whereas, you know, you have... And there's there's no promotion relegation. They are... It is, and it forever will be, the state league, which is below the national league. So it's not like... It's not like European football where you have Division 2, Division 3, and the clubs have have a potential to rise up into the top tier. Yeah. where players may stay with their clubs for the sake of, I can be, be part of this journey. Whereas this is just legitimately, this is a minor league and you are playing lower league football unless you want to go and yeah. play for an AFL club. So for them to say, well, it ruins the, the sanctity of our competition, well then, sorry, but for them, your player's goal should be the best player they can possibly be and that yeah. will then eventually mean taking opportunity whenever it comes. Well, this is a question of mindset of those individual leagues as well because obviously the VFL has basically been consigned to being not an AF, almost an AFL seconds comp with some standalones with great history and then with your obviously affiliates who are virtually reserves teams anyway. So it is essentially a reserves comp. Mm. Like if the composition of that has changed, they've kind of got to a point where they've realised that being precious about the history is not really going to help them because the AFL isn't particularly bothered about preserving the sanctity of the comp. Bit different in South Australia and WA because most of the teams are still standalone clubs. Like, so you've only really got, and you're only ever going to have two AFL reserves teams within that competition. So it, it does obviously leave it open as an argument. Um, I, I think that, like, it's really difficult because I have respect for the history of all those SANFL clubs and I'd like to think that the SANFL or the VFL Premiership can still be a worthy thing to win. And I, to be honest, I think that we saw even last year with the model that they have in the VFL, the VFL Premiership's still worthy. You can't tell me that people at Port Melbourne weren't over the moon hmm. and that wasn't an achievement. So I don't know if a little bit of player movement in and out really makes a huge difference. Like, I don't think it will affect the purity of those comps. It'll no. just 
probably yeah, but yeah, like if you're not playing tier one, then as a player, your aim is going to be to move up from tier two to tier one. So there's kind of a natural ecosystem vibe in that. Yeah, definitely. And you see that in other sports. And so NBA only has one tier, has player turnover consistently, and the roster you start with at the start of the year is different to the roster you ended up with at the end of the year. Yeah. So does that mean that that sanctity of competition is, is destroyed? I don't, I don't think so. Well, yeah. And also you see in European football, players will move from top tier to the second tier and second tier to the top tier, and there's player movement all the way through this, the first two mm-hmm. thirds of the year. It's just getting used to that. And someone then posed the question, it's like, well... How do the VFL or the SANFL clubs refill their list when players go? And it's like, what's well, simple? You go to the ammo. You yeah, go you further down pull the up chain. And, then and everyone me, gets an opportunity yeah, to improve. To me, it's a good thing for football because it gives players upward movement. And I think it creates, and this is what Andy Collins really said, um, it creates more good stories. Yeah. It creates more Liam Pickens, who I think his original salary at the Bulldogs was partially paid by Williamstown. It creates more Kane Lamberts, who's probably the most recent example and there's plenty of those from around the around the league over the years so i think inherently i i mean i'm in favor of this unsigned free agency pool i'm not sold on the trades because i think that this is a potentially a better way to to do it you know like okay yeah so naismith goes down with a knee sydney are able to go out and get the best ruckman they can get in the quaffle or the whatever else they want yeah yeah um and i think there was an opinion piece by Ronnie Lerner, and this is in The Age, um, and this is kind of one of the arguments that goes the other way. So I would argue that, and he kind of argued, that the Tigers and the Bulldogs just improvised around their injuries and found a way to win anyway. So does having this mid-season out take away from good list management and good coaching and good planning? No, it just changes what those things mean. Yeah. So good list management now becomes having a scout that's full-time on VFL, so if a player does go down, we can replace him with an appropriate player. And, and it means, and then sometimes, do, is it is the player there? Is it is there a player worthy? Is there do we actually need to bring that player up? Is it worth coaching him up to our standard and all that kind of stuff? So well, it just yeah. it just creates different challenges, different questions. It just makes it a different task. And the other thing not is, a better or worse one. If you're looking for scouts to have VFL knowledge, and AFL clubs do already have knowledge of what happens in the VFL because a lot of them play in it. But if you were forced by this rule to expand your scouting network. That's an, that can only be a good thing in terms of recruiting state league players in, in the regular circumstances and the regular drafts, can't it? Like, that can't be a negative at any point in the year. No, not at all. Um, for state league footballers. Um, so, yeah, I guess my conclusion, and I'll get yours in a minute, is really, like, unsigned free agency pool, 100% way to go, should happen, be able to pull your players up from the state leagues. Guess what? If the Sandville and the Waffle don't want to come to town, VFL players will be happy with it. I think the VFL clubs will be happy with it. Um, so I think that's a really, a really valid option. I'm not sold on the mid-season trades. Um, I don't know if you have a difference in opinion there. No, no, I think, yeah, I, I like, we are still a naive professional league when it comes to these things. And so we shouldn't, yeah, in all reality, we shouldn't be expecting our players to do the things that American leagues do. I also don't think there's, there's a loss of romance as well when, you know, there's a chance that, all of a sudden, Jack Rewalt has traded from Richmond and he's been a Richmond player and then you lose that player and that's something that you've got to deal with a lot more in US sports than you do in Australian sports. So is that romance about mm. a one-club player? And I think the pressure shouldn't be on that player then to say, I don't want to play anywhere else, I'll, I'll retire instead because he, cause he might get traded towards the end of his career because he might be worth something in a trade and all, the, all those other tactical things that play out in US sports. So like that already happens. A little bit, but it won't happen mid-season. There's an opportunity 
at towards the end of the season there that that kind of allows it to come to a natural end as opposed to uh, suddenly whoop your yeah, Richmond career's over or whatever club it is. Yeah. But definitely the co-ops and the state leagues, I'd love to see more of that. And it should be, I think it's underutilised anyway as a talent pool. Like we should have more people coming out from state leagues in the drafts anyway. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with that. It's the whole thing, the money ball theory about recruiting mature ages rather than uh, high school players and how you actually get a better gauge on someone at age sort of 20 as opposed to age 17 or 18. Or even with today's like techniques and, and fitness training and all that sort of stuff, it's 25, 26. Mm-hmm. Like, people will continue to play. And again, to use basketball as an example, like LeBron James is 35 and he's still the best player in the league. Like, if you treat yourself right and train to the appropriate levels, you can extend a career well into your th- mid-30s to late-30s now and it'll just get later and later and later as we get more and more advanced. A whole different discussion thread that could be picked up there. Any uh, final thoughts? No, it's uh, very exciting to have football almost fully upon us for you. Almost fully upon us. So we'll be back next week with our complete uh, preview of the AFLW Grand Final. Uh, we'll have another book next week. Don't know what it'll be, but you know we'll work something out. And then uh, come Thursday, it's uh, into the bull ring. Thank you very much. It's been a it's been a wonderful morning. Thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll speak to you soon. Monday's experts always know what's best. Always tell you what you should have done. Monday's experts always know what's cooking. How the game was lost and how it could have been won. And when Monday comes around, everyone's at a